0: Sunday I began with you a series of messages for this summer called Turning Points, proposing that we would examine a dozen or more Old Testament figures, they will mostly be familiar to you in the Bible, people making critical choices in dramatic situations, either for or against God-centered faith. And I started in Genesis 3, where I'm going to read in a moment, where the die is cast for mankind in the fall and disobedience of our first parents, who were real people representing us. Sin and rebellion enters the picture, and everything is changed for the human race. And Romans 5.12 says that sin entered the world through one man, and death came through sin. Now, I have the really unusual charge, if you're a visitor here, this doesn't happen very often, but of a two-part sermon, And, and that's difficult because it assumes maybe you heard the first. So I will give a bit of a recap, but you might want to get the CD or listen on the website. But this is such an important text that just developing it last time didn't leave me much time to apply it or say, so what? And that's what we want to say this morning. I read now once more for you Genesis 3, verses 1 through 15. Hear the word of God. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of them both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And the Lord said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is God's word altogether true in every possible way. I stressed last time the great fact that God did not walk away from the scene of mankind's spiritual downfall. Our Creator didn't give up on us. He might have come, in the, if He was Zeus or uh, one of those mythical gods created by men, He might have come into the Garden of Eden with lightning bolts to destroy those who had disobeyed Him. But He did not. He came with a question. He came seeking, where are you? Will you come and face me and answer my questions? In a very quick summation, let me go over this much to help those that might not have been here last time or remind the others. We spoke first last time of the deceiver's reckless attack in verses 1 through 5, not knowing exactly what kind of a creature it was who is called the serpent, probably not a talking snake. The Hebrew word is such a complex one, but it implies someone who was beautiful and beguiling A personage of some type who spoke these words that were so insinuating about what God had said, first, just asking a question, but then making an assault. Did God really say? "No, He didn't mean that. And we've been assaulting the truthfulness of God's words ever since. Secondly, after the deceiver's reckless attack, we looked at humanity's ruinous awareness here. After rebelling, their eyes were open. That's what was promised, that their eyes would be open, and they were, but not in the way that they hoped. Their eyes were opened to see horrible things and understand the world in a whole different way, to experience shame, to see evil firsthand. We saw that when human choice is divorced from divinely guided morality, chaos results that human beings hardly know how to live with. The abounding joy that the first man and woman had in each other and in the presence of God was completely spoiled. And everything was downhill from there as far as joy was concerned. Thirdly, in verses 8 through 15, we saw God's relentless approach. There's amazing grace in this passage. Talked with a couple during the Sunday school hour being interviewed for for worship and they spoke about how they're discovering grace in their lives. Saying that they had come from church backgrounds where it all seemed to be law. Check off these rules, obey these things, do your best and make God happy and they said all you find out from that is you can't keep the rules. Well, here was God coming when a major rule, if you will, had been broken, a prohibition that drew a line between man and God. But God didn't come to destroy them. He came to say, where are you? Can we confront this? He initiated contact with them and brought not only the working out of his justice here, but the promise of redemption. Because in Genesis 3.15, we have and it just springs to life there. with it's something you don't expect. The Bible's first prophecy of Christ, who is that seed of the woman promised who would crush the head of the enemy of mankind and God. In this crisis, God met shamed, guilty people in their brokenness and their weakness. And that's his pattern. That's his habit. He's been doing it ever since and pointing to the restoration he's going to make possible in the cross of Jesus. Now, that's enough review. I come back to revisit the text because we didn't really apply it. You know, it's so easy just to march through and say, well, here are the teachings, one, two, three. And it's very easy for you to say, so what? You know, does it apply? Does it it really speak to Something that changes my life in a daily way or impacts my world. Well, there are a host of things that it could apply to, but I'm only going to speak to two this morning. One, the first one's longer and the second one will be short in case you you think point two is as long as the first. That won't happen. Point one in an application. We need to look at the words spoken here about God's revelation of truth. Did God really say? I believe what we have here is a showing of the need for a radical trust in God's revelation. To be a Christian is many things. It is, of course, first and foremost, to lay your life down and surrender to Christ as Lord. But a Christian is a person who learns to have a particular stance towards the truth of God and who is willing to say in terms of God's written revelation, yes, God really has spoken and I'm ready to believe and understand and be predisposed to take him at his word. Our job is not to take the scriptures and filter it and work with it until we have so diluted it that there's not too much left of it but now it's palatable once we've weakened it to our human notions. Certainly, there will be Bible passages that are hard to understand. There are Bible passages that are symbolic, and it has to be understood that they're symbolic or metaphorical or promises that await a mysterious fulfillment in the future. And there are those difficulties in the Bible, but we can still come and study the Word of God and use the best experts who can help us with this and come to see a reasonable, plain sense of God's Word in 98% of all cases. And when we do that, we come and say, look, here is my authority. God is speaking here. Here's a living book. There are many great books in the world, many inspirational books, many books that warm our hearts or entertain us. Here's a book that's alive, a book that pursues me, that probes me, that, that points out my fault, a book that provokes me to go to my knees before God. It's a book that earns the adjectives infallible and inerrant because it shows us time and again that it is those things. And so it's a book I will bow to. It's a book that will cause me to sing praise to God. It's a book that will be like a little flashlight in the dark when I don't have anything else to help me see where to go in a dark time in life. But what I will not do as a Christian is come to this book and say, I am going to negotiate it down and weaken it or remove things to get it down to some least common denominator stance until it agrees with what 51% of my peers in American society say is true at any given moment. I won't do that. I'm going to use an example, and it's an example that cuts, an example that has a very current interest. Why? should we not talk about that, which is of the most current interest today. The question is this as an application. Does the Bible speak with clarity in the matter of same-sex attraction, homosexual behavior, and so-called gay marriage? That's a tall order, isn't it? Well, on one side of the social debate, we have the current president of the United States. And our president has told us very openly, very boldly, clearly, that he believes his views have now changed on this subject. Now, you may have your own reasons for wondering why his views have changed, but he has told us this. He has not mentioned any guidance by Scripture in the matter. Maybe he consulted it, maybe he didn't. It appears, though, that he's one of millions of people who have developed a moral conclusion primarily from the basis of human reason. And so if he asks the question, I don't know, did he ask himself the question, did God really say a man should not marry a man or a woman should not marry a woman? If he asked it, we have no evidence that he asked it. And if he did ask it, he said, no, the Bible doesn't say anything about that. Or worse, perhaps he said, it seems like God does say something, but I denounce it. That's what millions say. It doesn't matter what God says. God's just wrong. Or we've outgrown God's will on the thing. Well, beyond what a president says, I'm concerned to know what many younger Christians are saying. Younger men and women in college, as young adults, even in high school, certainly are led to think about this subject that's very current. You can believe every college talks about it. And our young people, evangelicals, we're finding are changing their views the way our president says he's changed his view. You get quite a different result if you ask people over 50 or 60 what they think on those questions and ask people under 30 what they think on those questions. We need to be concerned, and young people, I am concerned, for it's important to know whether the Bible speaks about a question like this. Now, we could go to a half a dozen places. I don't have that kind of time, so I just will mention one place to go to that's an absolute keystone text to talk about this subject. It's Romans chapter 1 an extremely important part of the Bible, just as Genesis 3 is important. And in Romans 1, Paul is unfolding the great argument that will become that masterpiece of a doctrinal book, and his beginning premise in Romans one eighteen is to show how mankind has, even from nature, a plain knowledge of who God is and basic things that God requires. And yet, that knowledge has been rejected Paul writes, what man can know about God is plain, but he says man has pushed it off and won't have it. And then in Romans 1.21, he says, although people knew God, they would not honor him as God, claiming to be wise, they became fools and became futile in their thinking. Exact description of what happened to Adam and Eve. But then he goes on to press this particular case, verse 24, Romans 1. He says, Paul writes, God gave up those who did these things, he gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies. He goes on in verse 26 and says, he gave them up to dishonorable passions for women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and men committed shameless acts with men. And by verse 28, he says, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, that's absolutely clear. You cannot argue with me that that is not clear. You can reject it. You can take a Thomas Jefferson approach and cut that page out of your Bible. But it's there. God said it. And I say, Mr. President, do you ever read the word of God? Evidently not. Or evidently, perhaps you even think that you hold an office of power that allows you to draw stronger and more authoritative conclusions than God. Now, there are other texts that speak on this subject, but I would say if you had this one text and put it alongside what we do in rebelling at God's word in Genesis 3, you would be rejecting the word of God if you did not conclude that same-sex attraction, homosexual behavior in particular, and so-called gay marriage is against the word of God because it's an exhibition of the bent nature of sinful human beings. You cannot negotiate that sociologically or politically and say that you have God's authority for your case. Now, I'm appealing to our young people because I know how beguiling this subject is today, so beguiling that you're almost brainwashed on this subject. You're told if you don't think the university's way of thinking or the political party's way of thinking or whatever it is, you're a hate speech person. What you're hearing right now is hate speech. Write it down. Today I listen to hate speech. Because that's what the society will say. If we look at what God clearly says and say, this is an exhibition of mankind gone wrong, I'm hating people. No, I'm not, actually. But I am telling you what the word of God says. His will is expressed on this subject. Now... Will I stop there? Most of the time, we stop there. But I want to say to you today, we can't stop there because I'm trying to speak about the radical commitment to the Word of God that a Christian must have. And here's what I mean we need to be committed not only to be bold in stating what God has said unequivocally in His Word, but also in Speaking that truth to the world, to individuals around us, in such a way that it also exhibits the mindset of the grace of God and the mercy of God, because that's how His Word works itself out in the life of Christ and in the exhibition of the gospel. What do I mean? I mean that people are not allowed or justified by God to take what I read in Romans 1 and say, all right, now I don't have a Bible. I have a club. Take that, you people who are same-sex attracted. Did God ever do that? I don't think so. And we are not allowed to do that. A radical commitment to the word of God is a commitment to its truth and a commitment to conveying it and speaking it out of the mercy of God and the grace of God so that that is visible in what we say. I'm sure some of you are thinking in your mind, we say that a very common way, don't we? We hate a sin, but we must love the sinner. And that's almost the hardest thing God ever calls us to do because it's so easy to see somebody in a behavior pattern, to see people struggling with same-sex behavior, which has to be a horrendous thing to struggle with. Because it's really doubt and confusion about who you are in the center of your nature. And to say, well, what you're thinking about or what you're toying with or what you're considering, let alone doing, is wrong. The Bible says it's wrong, so keep your distance from me. I can't get too close to you. I'm afraid you might influence me somehow. Do you see how a radical commitment to the Word of God requires bold stands on its truth? an equally bold and deliberate administration of its grace and its graciousness. You see, there are people who aren't going to encounter Christ who are struggling with these kinds of problems of identity. They're not going to encounter Christ until they encounter a Christian who cares about their soul, who comes to them the way Jesus did with the woman Caught in adultery. Was she guilty? Of course she was guilty. So was some man who wasn't even on the scene. But what did Jesus say? Go and sin no more, daughter. There was grace as well as truth. And a radical trust in biblical revelation means being bold for the truth and ministering uncommon graciousness so that the very mannerism of our lives is shaped by the truth of God's Word. Now, uh, secondly, and a shorter point, I bring you to Genesis 3.15 again because it's so important. Bible scholars are nearly unanimous that here is the very first announcement of the gospel in the Bible. I told you last time the fancy Latin name, the Proto-Evangelion. Wow, big theological term. It means first gospel. Because here, remarkably, when God should have been rejecting and blasting and condemning and cursing, and there was justice being worked out, but while he should have been doing only that, according to our standards, what was he doing? He was saying, I have a great redemption in mind. And in fact, I've already put this redemption in place. There's a lamb who is going to be the lamb of God who was slain from before the foundation of the world, and he's my son. And he's going to be the seed of the woman, Eve. And he's going to do battle with the seed of this serpent-like representative of Satan who's here. And there's going to be a real conflict. And Satan's head is going to be either crushed or bruised, depending on your reading. And Christ, the seed of the woman, Is going to be bruised in his heel, a lesser wound. You see, here's the announcement that the Bible's entire storyline is a trail leading toward Christ from Genesis 3.15 onward. A lot of people have never seen this. I, I think I never preach on this verse that somebody doesn't come and say, wow, I never saw that. I didn't know that verse was so important. But isn't it great to see this? Doesn't it tell you that God is one God, Old Testament and new? That he's doing one great thing that he had in view from the beginning and that here he not only once approached the sinful man and woman who were hiding behind trees they were so afraid of him, that he says I'm going to keep on pursuing and I'm going to pursue in Abraham's day and Jacob's day and David's day and the day of the Gospels and the day of Paul and the day of the 21st century, I'm going to be pursuing people until they meet my son, the seed of the woman. I didn't read it this morning. It's beyond. I can only read so much text and still have any time to speak. But Genesis 3.21 is a verse beyond what I read. And it's another part of this marvelous chapter. Let me just lift it out and put it before you for a moment. It tells of another act of God's mercy as it says, and here again, there's mystery as to just exactly how this happened. I can't explain it. But it says, The Lord God provided garments of skins for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. It's so often pointed out by the theologians, that animal blood had to be shed to cover the man and the woman in their newly discovered shame. Leaves didn't do it. Skins did. You don't get a skin unless an animal dies. Blood was shed. And the corollary is that in order to clothe this man and woman from their own shame and sin, the blood of an animal had to be shed. Somebody had to die so that they could no longer be so shamed as they were. Now, many see that. I haven't invented this myself. Many see that as a perfect symbol of what God does in shedding the blood of his Son to create the ultimate covering, what we call the robe of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is put upon a man or woman who comes to call him Lord, who comes out from behind the trees and out of the bushes and says, Here I am, God. I've sinned. I've rebelled. I haven't believed your word. You know, Adam never said it that way, did he? He said the woman did it, and the woman said the serpent did it, and just passed it on down the line. We're not allowed to pass it on down the line. We have to come to God and say, I did it. I'm responsible, and I don't have any hope. Do you have some hope for me? He does. He does in the person of his son. You know, there are people who want to blame God for woes of the human condition. They snarl at God. Why is there sin in the world? Why are there wars? Why do babies starve? God, I can't believe you're God until he straightens all that out. It's all his fault. And he's say in a very serious note, we're going to have a service in this sanctuary in several hours. We're a woman of this church, a lovely woman, not yet 60 years old, who died of Lou Gehrig's disease two weeks ago, one of the worst diseases you can possibly die from. And we could easily come to Sandy's funeral this afternoon and say, I can't believe in this God anymore. Why would he do this to somebody like Sandy who was a servant and a humble person and she deserved 20 more years and all those things? Or we can come and say, he's sovereign. He knows He's working out his plan. He's authored salvation for us while we authored nothing but sin and strife and difficulty and rebellion. And it is we who have made the choices, not that Sandy did something particularly wrong that gave her that disease. We're not saying that. But it's we who made the world the mess it is. Don't miss the fact that from the very hour of mankind's primary ruin, God was announcing redemption from genesis 3:15 onward he said i've set a trail and it leads to christ there is a redeemer and on a cross satan will bruise him on a day of resurrection satan will fall you can follow that trail as it comes to a climax in the very last book of the bible Particularly, I'll cite this verse, Revelation 12, 10 and 11. It comes as a kind of conflict of the ages in which Satan is finally being denounced, a prophetic picture of Satan's downfall and a voice from heaven. This is a prophetic scene, a vision. And in this vision, Revelation 12, it is said this from a voice in heaven, now is the salvation and power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ It is now come for the accuser of our brothers is thrown down and they, the saints who endure on earth will conquer by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Ladies and gentlemen, press on the trail.